Tonight we welcome Petaluma-based record producer and recording engineer Jim Stern to the stage at the Phoenix Theater. Jim has been at it for over 40 years. He's worked on projects for hundreds of artists, including Van Morrison, John Lee Hooker, Sonny Rollins, and many others. Tonight we'll explore the stories, the characters, and the insights he's gleaned from a life in music. Please welcome to the program, Petaluma's own, Jim Stern. Jim Stern. Welcome to the stage, James. Wow, is that actually me? Yes. (laughs) Can you believe that it's you? Amazing. You have worked on so many different genres, not just stuff that the more notable names I mentioned have played. I mean, you, you, what, what is the range of genres you've done? The variety is amazing from rock to pop to uh, country um, to a lot of jazz, a whole lot of jazz and some movies and movie stuff. Did I do one for over the cuckoo's nest? I did Lord of the Rings. I did Fritz the cat and heavy traffic and payday and black gun and black girl and all these B movies and stuff. (laughs) So you are writing a book or you're collecting stories, which will hopefully culminate in a book. You know, yeah. What it is, is, you know, we talk like this and I tell a story and friends would say, you got to write that down. For years, they've been saying that. And people have offered to help authors and editors that I know who were professionals have said, you know, I'll ghostwrite or whatever, but you got to get it down. So I started writing it. I have another home. I live in Petaluma, but I have another home at Cobb up in Cobb Mountain in Lake County. And when I go up there, that's, it opens up for me somehow, and I've written almost every one of my stories up there. So when something comes up like this, I'll make a note on my phone, and then when I go up there, I'll go through the notes and pick out the stories and write them, and there's like 43 here and another 31 on the phone right now. And I don't know what it is. I just am writing my stories down. When, it's, when I'm done, I haven't gotten more stories, or I, I've run out of paper, <laughs> whatever it is that, that, to do, then I'll sit down with someone like that and say, okay, here it is. What do I do with this? Or do, I, or do I do anything with yeah. it? It's kind of funny um, knowing you from downtown Petaluma because I think for people who just see you walking around, the music is kind of a double life for you. You know, I mean, you would never know to look at you that you have been involved with all these great artists jamming with the Grateful Dead back in the 60s and the, or the early 70s, I think. No, 60s. Oh, it was in the 60s. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, working with Van Morrison, who's probably the person whose music that you worked on that was most widely listened to. Probably, yeah. Yeah. And and all the all the great Bay Area talent and stuff. So it's it's fun to be able to do this because you're a, very much so a downtown presence, just like Tom's a downtown presence and I'm a downtown presence. Yeah. But I, I never it. knew that you had this background until like... Like, you know, two, well, three years ago. I kept a pretty low profile yeah, you do. for a lot of years. Uh, when I was at Fantasy, I was VP of Studio Operations and Engineering. I designed, built, and ran the studios, staffed them. I mean, I started out with just me. So everything grew around, grew, grew around that. And uh, I kept a real low profile in Fairfax because there were a lot of people who would just bug the heck out of you, you know, oh man, you got to record my brother-in-law and, or whatever it is. And uh, they got their little kid, bring them up and have them dance for you while you're having breakfast somewhere. And it's like, you know, so people didn't know, but I kept a low profile and I kept that going when I got to Petaluma. 
Because a lot of these folks, like Bill Champlin and, and like Van and like Santana and like the, the dead guys, I mean, so many of these guys live in the Bay Area. Absolutely. And so many of them, I, I assume, are people you've worked with, people you've become friends with over the years. It's, yes, and you'll find that there are some really, really high-end, top-notch, world-class people doing work right here in Petaluma that you don't know about because they're hidden away. They don't want all the, the tension and it, it takes away and it, it makes, you know, they I saw the interview with Dave Glass, and he said something that just has rung in my ears ever since. You approach something for one of two reasons. One, you want to do something, or two, you want to be somebody. And most of the people I know who are really doing something, they're really not looking to be somebody. They already are somebody, and they, we know who they are, you know, and that's, that's the more important part of it. Has that been a guiding principle in your life? Somewhat, because, okay, uh, I can walk down the street. We used to have to dress Van up with beards and weird clothes to go out, to go out and yeah. do anything, you know. We were in one restaurant. We couldn't get any food because they were arguing about who's going to serve him and all. They don't know who I am. I walk around Petaluma. Nobody knows who I am. My neighbor down the street for 40 years did not know anything about this until just recently. What has caused the pivot then in recent years to being a little bit more free and easy about sharing it with people? I'm old. Yeah. Is that, is that true? <laughs> no, I mean, it's is that part, it? Well, it's part of it. I'm 72. I've done a lot. I still do. I just did the foxes in the hen house. And at this point, I don't have a problem with it anymore. I, I, I'm not doing the amount of work I used to do. I was thinking about this on the way over. I made probably, probably 10 albums a year easily, yeah. easily for 20 years. Who does that? You can't do that. Not today. It isn't that, that, that you're not good enough or what, but there's just a plethora of, of studios and, and everybody's doing it in the bedroom on a Mac and you got hundreds of bands now and YouTube and everything. And one person can't do that much work anymore. You worked with people from the jazz world, but oh. you also worked with people from the uh, rock world. That's true. The jazz guys, they would come ready to work. Yes. And a lot of the rock guys would come and it'd be a lot more low key and a lot more laid back, which I think was sort of frustrating for you. No, it depended on how, how well the sessions flowed. Cause I, I, and I could be wrong on this, but I, I feel like there were some people who came in who were very loose. I don't remember who the artists were. Oh, yeah. And were they, they, they were, you know, no, they were very loose. And you, you didn't have a lot of faith in the project initially because you're like, these guys are not ready to go. But then they surprised you. Well, uh, most of the time, I must admit, I was kind of dominant. I wouldn't take a lot of crap. You know, it was like, come on, guys, let's go. You know, we're here to do this. Let's do this. You know, you want to party. Some, you know, when I was in L.A. after I'd left Fantasy and, and there were, you know, groups like Ario Speedwagon and some other groups like that who, who partied pretty hard. Uh, but they were there to do business, too, you know, so you could deal with it. It was the ones that, that were the amateurs, the ones you don't know that didn't become big names or whatever because they really didn't know what they were doing. And that was the hardest part for me. And sitting there going... Roll it back. Roll it back. You know, just God, man, I could have played it myself right the first time. You know, that kind of drove me nuts. You both have worked in music for the better parts of both of your lives. Yeah. Sometimes the entertainment industry is an extremely stressful place with a lot of big personalities, and a lot of what you're doing is less the show and more dealing with the personalities to make sure the show gets through. On my end, that's absolutely correct. I think it's true. Same thing in the studio. Same thing in the studio. My question would be to both of you, um, did you use approaches back then that now in retrospect 
you feel you could have been better served to use a different approach? I don't know. I was young and stupid. I probably did do things like that. Who knows? But it worked. Whatever it was, it worked. In order to live these lives and have these careers, sometimes a certain amount of behavior, which maybe when you look at it in isolation, isn't doesn't make you look the best. However, <laughs> no, sometimes true. it's necessary to get the job done in the yes. moment. And you and, know that's yes. the truth. And you lose yeah. the if you lose the context of the situation, you could you could cherry pick moments from li- lives like these, and you'd be like, "Boy, I was an asshole that day." But you can you, you but, can you can Monday morning quarterback anything you want. That's true. You know that's and, true. And if you look back, I could have done things very many things over my life better. Yeah. But you did what you did at the time, and that's who you were, and you did the best you could. And if you pissed some people off well you pissed some people off that's the that's the uh unifying thing i'm trying to say yeah. he's been pissing people off for years i and, have uh, you know my sometimes thing was with a smile on his face i didn't mind yeah. pissing people off if i if it was a matter of it was jeopardizing the project my job was to get the project done and it was not it was not being friends with the people that were well it was but but you had to do it in a way that that could get the project well done. the difficult yeah. thing about that though is checking your own thoughts feelings and emotions and making sure you are of sound mind and you're not being swayed by your own emotions because yeah. what may seem like the best idea for the project might actually be the best idea for your hurt ego at the time exactly. and, that, and as the person in control it's really important to try to be as yeah. cognizant and aware of that i tried yeah. to leave my my personal ego at the door i didn't leave my professional ego yeah you know people say hey man you got a strong ego you have to every musician every every performer you cannot stand on that stage and look at that audience unless you feel you belong there and you and and it's a natural place for you and you can do it it's a tough situation because also in that position um there are going to be people who whether they just don't like the type of product you're doing, or maybe they just don't like you to look at you for whatever reason, they're going to attack you. So you need to, yeah. you need to be powerful and you need to stand your ground. If you're in a position like that, That's exactly it's a right. really tough balance it trying tough to maintain balance. the humility to not let your ego get in the way of the job getting done, but also have enough, uh, confidence in yourself to have the inertia to push the project forward. And sometimes you have to do it subtly. Uh, <clears throat> I'll give you a good example. Most of the time with Van Morrison, it was, Everybody was there. If it was horns and strings, and most of the time it was there. Very seldom did we cut a track and then overdub stuff. Uh, so uh, there were times, I think, I don't know if it was Beautiful Vision or Inarticulate, one of those albums. Uh, this was the one we were talking about earlier. I got the call at six in the morning from the bass player to pick him up. I didn't even know there was a project. Yeah, that was before we were recording. But yeah, one morning you got a phone call. I got a phone call. You picked me up in the studio. What are we doing? I don't know. I thought you knew. I said, I didn't even get the call. So we get down to the studio and nobody knows anything and people start showing up. Uh, Tom Dollinger, great drummer. He was uh, uh, a rotary connection, which became Earth, Wind and Fire. Great, oh, great drummer. He taught bananas for years. He shows up, never played with Van before. Uh, Chris Hayes from, from Huey's band, yeah. never played with Van before. Uh, you know, all these all these guys started showing up. They'd never played with them. In the never ba- played with them, and I bet none of them know why they're showing up. Oh, no, they know the Van, you know, they were called to, yeah. to be there. But they don't know what piece they're working on. They don't know anything. Yeah, nobody knows nobody anything knows except anything. that Van called them and told exactly. them to show up. Exactly, and they yeah. showed up, and that's all they know. So and what did you have, about 12 players, 10 or 12 players? Something like that. So Van in those days could not tell you what to do. He didn't know how to tell people what to do. So it just fell apart. It was really a mess. And he came in, he sat down, he says, I fucked it up again, Jimmy. I said, I'll tell you what, Van, go home. Come in tomorrow at 3 o'clock. So I had bass and drums come in at 10 a.m. 
Then I had guitar player come in at 11. Then I had the keyboard come in at 11.30. And I staggered everybody in. And I said, no, 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 you got to play like this. And I and, and listen to, and, and now no, pay attention. And, and I, I worked. So were you arranging the parts at that no, point? No, no, no. I'm just getting these people to learn to play together. He was giving these little workshops about how to work with Van how Morrison. To work with, how to work with Van Morrison. Stop trying to do all that stuff. Listen and just give me this. And then you can fill in here as you, but you got to pay attention to where this is and what that is, whatever. Anyway, he came in and we cut everything. At two in the morning, we finished and he, he sat down. He said, wow. He said, we've cut everything I had. I said, well, go home and write me some more songs. I'm kidding, right? Yeah. He went home and wrote five songs. What five songs. Answer me this, Jim. So when he comes in finally in the afternoon, had these people any idea what tunes? Yeah, they were doing the tune that he put in front of them. That at that moment, at that moment, he goes yes. like this. Okay, Tom, you got your yep. bass, ding, yep. ding, 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 ding. I looked at that, and you better be playing right now. Wow, because that's it. He's not going to tell you anything. You got to know what he's doing. You got. Is he giving you the notes? Is it written down? What notes? <laughs> right. What are you talking wow. about? Wow. Notes. There were no notes. The notes came out of his guitar, man. You had to know what he was, where he was going. If you didn't know, you're out of the band. Wow. Yeah. So I like that story a lot because um, basically you saved that session. Probably I saved a few of them like that because it, it just, he, he was, how do I put it? He said on the Tonight Show one night, I think it was Jay Leno, I think it was. He said, you know, you got a bad reputation, blah, 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 blah. He says, you know, the problem is I'm an introvert in an extroverted profession. Yeah. I never forgot that because that's the truth with him. He had to kind of be bullied into doing a lot of stuff in the early days. He's much better now in the last 10, 15 years or whatever, he, he knows how to do. I mean, he, he's really a consummate performer on all levels and Jim, amazing, I, amazing talent. I got to ask, um, the horns uh, on, on most of Van's stuff is, yeah. is almost my favorite stuff. Okay. Or, who wrote those? Who, who arranged those parts? <laughs> okay, here's the story. I cut an album, I forget what it was, and I'm putting horns on it. Van would, Van would leave. If we did basics, he's gone. He'll call me, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm putting horns on whatever it was. He said, I bet you Pee Wee convinced you to let him write a chart. I said, yeah, he's in there writing it now. He says, go, sh go shred it. Take it out of there. Make them play. They'll, they'll, they'll step all over my music if you let them write it down. So I went in and I took the chart away. He said, what are you doing? I said, boss called. Get in there. Okay, ready? I rolled the tape. So they had to listen to the track. And they had to kind of fit into the track and wow. not put something on top of the track. Oh, and that's one of the reasons why you, you won't find horn charts on Van's projects. You'll find horn players listening to him. After a while, they, they got to know who he was. People like, like, like Pee Wee and Mark Isham, consummate musicians, Pee Wee, may he rest in peace, and Mark is one of the top guys in LA doing all those movies and TV shows. They knew where he was. They knew who he was. They, they knew how to play with him, and they knew what to do. So they would just... Nah, nah, and they would just know how to fit into his music. So they, did, so they enhanced it instead of tromping on it. They don't do their best job if they show up and they're the best train. They do their best job if they show up and know how to read the terrain. That's sort of your job as well. That's right. Uh, Van Morrison once uh, told you that he wasn't paying you enough. And why, why is that? He, we were, I don't know what we were doing. I think we were out to dinner or something. He says, you know, Jimmy, you don't charge me enough money. You're worth a lot more. You don't realize how valuable you are. You've got to figure out a way to charge me more. He's the only, nobody's ever done that. I mean, excuse me, but uh, you need to charge more. 
But here's the thing. You weren't just an engineer or a producer. You were a, a navigator, and you were somebody who was taking all of the personalities and all of the quirks and all of the talent and putting it all together, helping it synthesize into an album that people would then want to listen to and that worked. And it could be argued that because you had the background working with Van and working with all the people in that network— you had a level of knowledge that a person coming off the street, even if they were the most educated and most practiced in the trade, they maybe wouldn't have been able to be as effective. And I think that's, that's part right. of the reason as to why he said that to you. There's a story you once told me about you guys did a, a recording together and uh, an individual, I don't even know if you can put this on here, I'll delete it if it's bad, but uh, <laughs> if it was a secret, but uh, I think you guys had recorded something and Van was like, it was horrible, trash those tracks. Okay, I okay. Never, I'll, I'll tell you yeah, what it tell is. me that story. But, but this is a good example of, why you were worth more money compared to a, you know, yeah. similarly talented guy was because of stuff like this. Right now, <clears throat> pardon me, he, came, he brought his guy over from England. He hasn't recorded here in years. He has a studio in Bath. A few years ago, he brought his engineer over, and we sat down. We had lunch in Sausalito, and we went to every studio that we had worked in and got all the tapes that we had gotten, right, that, so he could get everything. And the guy says to me, he says, do, we, do you have to keep tape rolling whenever Van's around? What are you, nuts, man? <laughs> he had to have tape rolling whenever Van, because Van didn't trust any of these. They didn't know, you know, they'd mess something up, so you yep. keep tape rolling all the time. I'd he'd do a take, and he'd look up at me, and I'd say, no, nah, do it again, and I'd erase it, because I don't want that going out in 20 years when he stops recording, because it's not good. So I would erase it. I want to expand on that point, meaning that you don't want that to exist, and then somebody going combing through his personal archives and then releasing it as a B-side or a Van Morrison thing, or making money alter, off it. alternate take or something exactly. like that. Because it's not a good take. It's a, it's a lousy take, and, and we don't want it on there. And you I don't knew, even want it to exist because, because you don't want to give somebody in the future that opportunity. It sucks. Why do you want to keep it? Don't even keep it because somebody History. will somebody say, hey, it's there. No, it's not. <laughs> so we cut a tune called Cleaning Windows. And we cut it, I don't know, everywhere. Every studio probably we worked and we cut this tune. So we're in the studio and we're playing this tune. We cut this tune and he was fighting with Bill Graham at the time because Bill wanted the Stones. And they said, you've never handled a prima donna. You got Van Morrison. He's the biggest prima donna on the planet right in your backyard. And so he went and got Van and that got him the Stones. Well, then he put one of his underlings, Harry, whatever his name was, on to Van. Oh, Van was absolutely furious. He was really pissed. So they were, you, and what was Harry's role with Van? He was, the, he was the guy. You don't talk to Bill now. You talk to Harry. Okay. So they were fighting, and it wasn't good. And so we're in the studio, and I'm sitting there at the console, and Graham comes up behind me, and he's you know doing the back rub thing. Oh, Jimmy, man, that's a hit. That's, I said, shut up, Bill. He doesn't want a hit. Shut up, man. Shut up. And he's, oh, yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Well, that night, Van called me. He says, go get every version we did and burn it. Because he overheard that stuff. And I said, yeah. He says, I know. You can't do it. Bring it to me. I'll do it. I said, no, no, I'll do it. So I did. I went to the studios, and I didn't burn them. I just cut them off the reel and threw them away. So we cut it again, and it didn't work. So we cut it, we're at the record plant, and we cut it, and it just didn't work. And he looked at me, and he says, oh, man, I fucked that up again. I said, well, maybe not. He said, you saved one. I said, yeah, I did. Which one did you save? I saved the one with Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits. Oh, yeah. I said, because it was a killer track. He says, really, really? I said, yeah. I said, go home, I'll, fi I'll, I'll, I'll fix it, I'll finish it up. So I finished it up. I brought in Chris Mickey to do some lead guitars, and, and that was the big, that was the hit of that album, was Cleaning Windows. But, you know, that one would have slipped through had I just done what he said. But I knew better. I said, this one, I just can't do it. I didn't have the heart to do it. 
So I saved it. You know, I've, I've seen him frats on people over the years, and he's got a reputation and blah, blah, but he was never anything but wonderful to me. And I cannot say anything bad about the man. He was a good friend to me and always, always was, I mean, generous and wonderful, and I, I love the guy. No, and those players were always coming back and playing with him, weren't they? Absolutely, yeah, you know. And his, mu- his music is special. His music is special. I was more fussy about his music than he was. You say, that's good. I say, no, no, go away. I'm going to make that right, you know. I just feel like you offered a complimenting sort of presence to his talent. He would bring a lot of stuff, the music, the reason that people were buying the albums, but you were providing a path in order to how to fully realize those ideas or those tracks. That's my job. That's my job. I'm a translator. My job is to get your art onto the medium. It's not to get my art onto the music. I'm so honored that the man would let me pu- inject myself into his music. What are you doing? He says, I'm, I'm putting uh, pipes on Celtic Ray because it just called for pipes. I called uh, uh, Sean Folsom. I said, bring your alien pipes over. We're going to do this thing. And this was just an idea you had. It, just, it was an idea. It screamed pipes. It's like, God, this has got to have pipes. But he let me inject myself into his music. How did you meet Van Morrison? My phone rang in the office. It was my secretary. She says, it's Van Morrison on the phone. (laughs) Yeah, right. I didn't even know he lived up here. I better take it because it's one of my friends, I'm sure. Hello, Jim. Yeah, this is Van. I said, "Uh, yeah. And he said, well, I understand you live in Fairfax. I said, yeah, I do. He says, well, so do I. And these guys were putting the studio together for me, but they don't know what they're doing. Nothing happens and it just isn't, you know. And they told me, you're the guy. Would you be willing to come and take a look? I said, sure. He says, what time do you get back to the county tonight? I said, about seven or something. He says, why don't you come for dinner? Okay. So I'm trying to figure out who's the voice. Who is this guy? Which, which one of my friends? So I figured I have to go because when this little old lady answers the door and I'm, you know, then I have something to get back at these guys with, right? When he answered the door, I'll tell you, I, I almost took a dump. It was like, oh my God, it's Van Moore. I had no idea. It, you know, and came in and we had dinner with Janet and he and I and, uh, he says, well, the band should be there. The band should be there. We go out in the studio, and they're all waiting for him. They're out in the studio. I had him rolling in a half an hour just on a stereo tape recorder. I put up some microphones and ran a stereo. So then I, I, I tore the place apart. I bought equipment. I bought tape recorders and stuff and everything, and I got it working. And uh, we cut uh, Hard Nose the Highway and Veed and Fleece there. And then um, years, and so we became friends. We would hang out a lot. He'd come to the house. I'd go to his house. I'd bring records, he'd bring records, we'd sit in the bedroom, play records, and uh, so the first time, he said, why don't you come over and bring some records? So I, you know, we're sitting in his bedroom, we're playing records, and I said, do you mind if I smoke a joint? He said, no, go ahead. That's the first and last time I ever asked him. I remember in the studio, I'd light a joint, and the guys were going, oh, God, I'd like that. but nobody in the band could, was allowed to smoke, and he, he would get really upset if he found, but I could do whatever I wanted. That was the kind of friendship I had. We... We, uh, we used to go hang out. We'd do things and all. And now he's got this entourage around him. It's like Elvis, you know, and there's this whole backstage thing and all. And I, I just, I can't go through the, the gauntlet to get. But this is such a great uh, public forum that if, uh, Mr. Morrison, you are listening to the program. Give, I love you, give, Van. Give Jim a call. Give me a call. He just, just wants to hang out one-on-one. No other folks. And it's my fault. I, I, sh- I didn't really have, a, I called Leslie Weiner, who was his 
financial person for many years and she wasn't doing it anymore. So I didn't really have a connection for him. And I didn't really try hard enough to find him because I wanted to congratulate him first on his 70th birthday and second on his knighthood. He was knighted by by, uh, the court of uh, Queen Elizabeth. So a a very important relationship, uh, hanging out with him and working with him. Absolutely. You have your uh, list of stories that you've taken note of um, as you work towards a possible book in the future. Uh, I see on there you have two things that are labeled the death experience. Yeah. Uh, did you come close to uh, death? I did die. I did. I had the choice to leave or come back. And uh, this was, uh, I don't know, 65 maybe? 66. I can't tell you exactly. It was somewhere in there. And um, I didn't really like this planet. It didn't really match up to what I thought it was. And <clears throat> it was just a lot of, you know, as you adjust through life, finding out that everything's not roses and, <laughs> you know, so uh, uh, I was given the choice. I was given the choice to stay or to leave. And as I had been going up, I could see my body and all the people were freaked out and I was turning blue. What had happened? That was a period where we'd come to your party and I'd go in the bathroom and open up your cabinet in the, uh, in the bathroom and I'd yeah. take whatever was whatever in Whatever was in there, you were the garbage can, is what it was called. I just, I was crazy. I just got a little bit too deep. And... Uh, I couldn't see where I was going. I could see that there was a light behind me. It was a, it was a bluish light, really, But I, as I remember. But I kept trying to turn to see where I'm going. I couldn't see where I was going. I could only see where I'd been. And I'm sure if I could see where I was going, I wouldn't have come back. And at that moment, I heard the voice. This is a voice that has guided me my whole life. And it said, okay, you want out? You can now leave. Choice is yours. <clears throat> and I said, well, but what's on? No, no, no. You make the decision. And then you find the answer. And I grew up. I grew up like that. I just said, okay, these are my exact words. I said, all right, I will go back and accept my destiny. That's exactly what I said. And then I was taught how to breathe. And finally, you know, I, after a few breaths, I was coming down and pretty soon. And I was kind of blue when I finally got conscious. Everybody was freaked out. I drove everybody home and I've never questioned my being here since. Tom had a similar experience, not exactly, but he as well spoke. Yeah, that's true. And that was that was uh, working through my addiction to cocaine, mm-hmm. actually. And, and uh, it, uh, yeah, and, and I was, uh, you can, well, you, you probably are going to die right now. Uh, yeah, I think I am, aren't I? You don't have to die if you don't want to. Uh, I don't? No, I'll tell you what. If you throw it all away, uh, you will live. Well, uh, here's the thing. Um it was like a quarter ounce of cocaine. So in those days, it was about $500 worth yeah, of coke. That wasn't easy to throw away, was no, it? No, <laughs> it wasn't. And I even said I started de- wheeling and dealing. Here's how, how about this? I wake up tomorrow morning, I sell it all, and I will never do it again. No, that would be spreading the poison. You got to make the decision. You either throw it away now or you're going to die. So I crawled to the bathroom sink and turned on the water and all down the sink. And son of a gun, that was it. I had, uh, I was doing about an eighth ounce a day. Oh, that's a lot. Oh, yeah. I was, boy, I mean, I had. I did I, that. I did that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and well, I think it was about that same period, quite frankly. Oh, yeah. But I think uh, it was, you know, because you'd have it all set up so that it'd be a uh, half, half gram to wake up to the next morning. And then you'd be able to, you know, keep yourself going all day long. And uh, boom, it was about a quarter and it all went down the drain. 
And, and here I, you are. And here I am. And I didn't need it. I didn't go through withdrawals. I didn't go through what I, what I was so afraid I would go through trying to quit doing cocaine because I needed to stop. It yeah. was it was stealing all of my time. It was stealing all my energy. Your soul. My soul. It was really stealing my soul. It yeah. really was. I could uh, stick myself in in a, in a dark corner and spend a whole night there and yeah. not answer the door and not answer the phone. And mm. ugh. I know that one. It was a prison. People would come to the studio with pounds. And, and just, you know, and I remember my nose was bleeding. I couldn't get in. And it just was crazy, man. I just, it was nuts. It was nuts. But, but you grew up in that moment in a way, and it also fortified your faith. It absolutely did. I was talking with God that night. It yes, absolutely, absolutely fortified my, my relationship. Me too. With, yeah. Absolutely. With God. Absolutely. Um, yep. Which made me a believer. So for both of you, <clears throat> music has been central to your being, but also yep. so has your faith. That's right. Oh, yeah. um, and Tom, we've talked at length about your faith. Yeah. You are a Christian. I am. And you come from a background of Judaism, is that correct? That's true. Yeah. And you're a member of the temple here in Petaluma? I am. I'm a past president, and I'm back on the board again, and uh, and I lead a lot of the services. And it's it's not that I'm good at ritual. I'm very good. I'm a 33rd degree Mason. I'm very good at ritual. But it's my tribe. My relationship to God is like his. We know there's a certain, and I have been so heavily guided I left Big Sur because I was sitting in the ocean, and if I had to talk to you, words, then you're just, you're not high enough. Because I was, it was psychedelic city. I was in Psychadelphia for many years. And I'm sitting in the ocean and communing with the whole ocean, you know. And the voice says to me, Jimmy, what do you really want to do? Wow. Dead silence. I mean, you, I didn't even hear the ocean after that. I said, well, I want to play my music. And the voice says to me, music is communication. You're too high to communicate with the world around you. If you want to play your music, you're going to have to come down. I've never done acid since. I walked away. Same thing with cigarettes. I couldn't break the habit. And one day I lit, it tasted funny. And the voice said, you can quit now. Throw them away. Throw them away. And I threw them away and I haven't had a cigarette since. You told me a story once about I believe it was someone in your church <laughs> who uh, wanted to convert, wanted to become a member of your faith. Mm-hmm. And they came and they visited the rabbi, and the rabbi, it's kind of... In most cases, if you come to a rabbi and say, I want to be a Jew, he'll turn you away. No. You come back a second time, he'll turn you away. No, go away. You come back a third time, he'll talk to you. And I've... One particular guy... I. His family is anti-Semitic. They hate Jews. And he's always felt himself to be a Jew, and he wanted to convert. And when you convert to Judaism, you come before three people. It's called a Beit Din. Beit meaning house, Din meaning judgment. So it's a, it's a court, <clears throat> essentially is what it is. It's a court. And so, you know, these people will review you, you know. And my question was, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to put yourself in any kind of harm's way? Do you realize what, what the world will look at you if you become a Jew? And why would you, what, he's always felt I was, I, I am, and, and he lost his whole family. They, they shunned him, they, they, they spit on him, they, but it didn't matter. He, and to this day, that is his faith. And uh, uh, who am I to say? And I don't see some guy on a throne, and I don't know who it is that's talking to me, but whoever it is that's talking to me is always right. 
And when I don't listen, I'm in trouble. When I listen, things go just fine. And, and this is my tribe. This is, I'm of, I'm of uh, the Jewish tribes. I'm of the tribe of Judah. I am, uh, I am covenanted in all the way through history. My whole family, there's, you know, we're, we've been this way for thousands of years and I had run away from it because I saw humanity. I saw humans in the human religion thing, you know, shouldn't do this. You can't do that. Do this. Listen to me. I'm the boy, whatever, whatever gets laid down as the dogma of, of the liturgy and all that stuff. And it wasn't until I realized that this is my tribe. I had been looking for my tribe all over, you know, Buddhism, all these things, everywhere you go, trying to find where you fit. And I realized it's been there all along. And it's just tribal. You know, you go out into the, into the, into the, the, what is the, the, the tent where they have the heat and everybody, uh, sweat lodge, you go out into the sweat lodge and you smoke the pipe and you, and you, you, you get into this reverie and whatever it is, or you go and sit on the mountain somewhere cross-legged and commune with, with trying to get everything out of your head. They're all different ways that people approach things and religions are ways to, to help you or to dominate you or whatever it is. And Judaism's no different. I mean, we have just as many wackadoodles as anybody else does. And for me, it is... Faith. I, I, as long as you are in faith, it doesn't matter exactly to me unless you tell me I can't do mine. If you tell me, well, you have to do it my way because that's the only way, then, then I have to draw the line because my way is my way and it may not be your way. But we may... There's spokes on a wheel. You know, we're going to get to the hub you're going to come this way. I'm going to come that way. We'll meet at the hub, you know, and that's kind of how I look at it. So, um, I participate in my community and when they ask, I give. But the concept of tribe is very important to you. I mean, these, well, is, 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 it was it, a way is of it, identifying it, what it was I was, I was immersing in. Cause it's deeper than just sense of community. The community is very important to you, but it's the background, it's the tradition, it's the ritual. You know, one of the things that I, that I do, especially in, in the service, I'll look at what, how was this put together? And it's just, you know, it's a bunch of Psalms and a bunch of prayers that, that, and what it is and what the rabbis have explained to me is you don't have to say that. That's not, that's not what it's about. These are, this is for people who can't come up with words. They don't know what to say. They want to they wanna pray, but they, you know, they, they don't know how to praise God or they don't know how to be thankful for the things they have and their words don't feel adequate to them. So from that standpoint, I think that, that uh, there's a lot of ways to do it. And when we get hung up in the details is when we get in trouble. Yeah. I'll tell you, it really comes down to is trust. When you've heard the voice... When you haven't heard the voice, I have some friends who say, I, I, I'm listening and I don't hear the voice. And I, I don't know how to guide them to the voice. How do you tell somebody to, how they can hear the voice? But when you hear that voice and when you know that voice, it's, it's a big voice. It, not, and I'm just not talking size, but within your structure yeah. of your soul, it's a big voice. Yeah, it carries a lot of weight. Exactly. And yeah. you know right away yeah. that that's a special voice and that that's not you and that's not Fred next door and so it gives you um, a window into the divine if you will which has essentially paved the path you've been on now for the last 72 years you know in, in your Argus article you had this quote you said to uh, somebody who wants to have the job you've held so many times you say the only advice you had was rely on your ears not the technical tools of the trade and follow your heart pay attention to every detail you should consider your work 
as art and yourself as an artist. And I feel like you're talking to us tonight um, was basically an expansion of that. Well, thank you. It's it, very edifying to me, and it it it, um, it made me think about things in different ways. That I you invoked certain responses for me that I probably would not have done on my own or whatever. So for me, it was really good. I, I can't wait to sit back and listen to this thing. Well, thank you yeah, for joining well, thank us. Thank you. I appreciate tonight. you asking me. Yeah. I'm very honored, and yeah. I think that uh, you've we're done, honored to have you've you done too. some great interviews, and I feel honored to be one of them. Thanks again, Jim. We really thank appreciate you, Jim. your time. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Tom. James, God bless thanks. you all.